sermon text this morning is Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for who all believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, if this is your first Sunday with us or you haven't been here in a while, we've been since January in these early chapters in Romans, chapters 1 through 3, and I want to continue on here Easter Sunday morning because as it happens, this text, which is a very well-known New Testament text, is our next text. I mean, who doesn't know Romans 3.23? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, in shorthand, if you wanted a, 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 condense, a condensing of the message of the first three chapters of Romans, you get it there in verse 23. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God, who is right to judge us for this, we being made We bearing his image and his likeness. And simultaneously, God is the only one who can do anything about this for us. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And just to take that phrase, the glory of God, let's begin there. It conveys in Scripture both an idea and an experience, the glory of God. Both an idea and an experience. The idea of glory is heaviness, it's weight, it's substance, it's thickness, not thinness. And the experience of glory for God is complete self-sufficiency in his own being. The glory of God can show up overwhelmingly bright. There's places in scripture where the glory of God displays and people hit their face and they can't see. And also the glory of God can be understated. I'm thinking of the time John records in his gospel, the time when Jesus turned the water at the wedding feast into wine, and none of the partygoers where he did that seemed to know it was happening, but John said in doing that, he displayed his glory. Glory can be bright and, ah, as we think about glory, but it can be understated as well. The experience of glory for God, when the verse says in verse 23 that we fall short of the glory of God, the glory of God means he's entirely content and secure in himself in a way none of us have ever been. He has no need to learn or improve because he does not fail. He has no faults. Nothing is too difficult for him, including raising his son from the dead, which is the foundation for everything we believe about the gospel, everything we believe about God. God is without that pollutant deep in our nature 
that the Bible calls sin. And we've been talking for a number of weeks here in our church as to why the doctrine of sin matters. And our text has been Romans chapters 1 through 3. I came across a statistic this week. I think I saw it on Twitter. So you know it has to be true if it's on Twitter. But it was something, it was, it was quoting a, a reputable publication. And I didn't catch exactly the number, but some 60-odd percent of American, the American public agrees with the Bible that human beings are sinful, which is a pretty remarkable thing when you consider it, that 60-some-odd percent of our public uh, culture would, would uh, agree with the Bible. That we're, I think where the argument comes in is whether what I do qualifies as sin. It's easy to say that sin is other people's problem. We've talked for weeks now about w- what sin is. We've talked about sin as unrighteousness, the things that are pretty obvious, the treatment that nobody wants, nobody wants to be lied to, nobody wants to be stolen from. Obviously, that's sin. But we've also talked about sin as self-righteousness. And we've talked about the directions sin goes, that, that both unrighteous and self-righteous sin is against God, it's against oneself, it's against others. There's a sense in which sin is, is omnidirectional that way. No one's left out. But the reason that we've keyed on why the doctrine of sin matters, it's not because this is a church full of masochists, you know, who want to, who want to just, uh, uh, get our, our nose close to, to difficult texts. It's because we don't understand the grace of God without a vibrant doctrine of sin. We don't get the point. And we don't understand the glory of God. And that God in His glory didn't need anything. And so to give us grace, to welcome us in, to, to make us His people when He didn't need us, is a marvel. In fact, it wasn't just that he didn't need us, it's also that in our sin we said to him, we don't need you, we don't want you. Because remember we talked about sin is our vandalism of God's shalom. That Hebrew word that that really encompasses everything that that goes into human flourishing. We've talked about sin as as our human propensity to mess things up. We've talked about sin as, as our love's disordered. We love the wrong things and we love the right things the wrong ways. In fact, this passage is worth rereading, isn't it? Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's the gospel. That's the bad news part of the gospel. The gospel means good news. The good news part is we can be justified by his grace as a gift. Verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, high dollar theological word, I'll I'll tell you what it means shortly, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this being Resurrection Sunday in earnest, again, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, but this one being the, the main one at the core what does this text have to do with that reality? This is a gospel text, but, you know, I thought pastors were supposed to talk on Easter Sunday morning about resurrection and resurrection only. I thought this was like an, sort of an unwritten rule. So why do you have us in Romans 3? Well, if for a moment, if you will, indulge me. I don't often ask you to, to cross-reference when we land in one text, but go back to Romans 1 for just a moment. You can either turn back or scroll if you're doing this electronically. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. 
Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to flesh, here's verse 4, was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So resurrection is in the backdrop. Where we are in chapter 3 is informed by this here in chapter 1. So we've got a preceding text, but also by extension of logic, where we are here in chapter 3, turn back to chapter 3 and key on verse 24, chapter 3, verse 24, where we get this mention of, of the gift of grace. You see that language here in verse 24? This gift... Verse 24 uses that word, this gift of justifying grace, that is that God in Christ declares us righteous before him. We who are unrighteous, we who are self-righteous, both. We get the righteousness of Christ applied to us in believing the gospel. But that would be, it's a gift, scripture calls it a gift, but it'd be a worthless gift if Jesus did not walk out of his tomb. Do you realize that? Think about gifts and givers for a moment, this dynamic. We're all familiar with gifts and giving. Perhaps you've heard it said that a gift carries something of the giver with it, but that means nothing if the gift turns out to be an afterthought or perish the thought, none of you in here do this, re-gift is something that you didn't want anyway. I'll just save that and pass it on to Uncle Joe. He loves cheap cologne, you know, something like that. Or if you feel like you've ever been in a situation where uh, a gift is mandatory, if you go to the function, you have to give a gift. I remember uh, early on when, when Lynn and I were first married and didn't have any money and, you know, you get an invitation to a friend's wedding and I'd go, Dad, gum it. I'm ashamed to admit this now, but I'd say, Dad, gum it, Lynn, that's grocery money. We're buying these folks a candle or something, you know. I don't know. Why do we do this? And I'd show up all resentful. Yeah, here's the gift. Congratulations. Wonderful day, you know. I'm really not that gruff, but when you don't have any money, you don't have any money. But if, if the giver, so we got that. Now you look at this scenario. If the giver is somebody you respect, and, and if the giver is somebody who obviously goes to effort and expense and thought and care for you in the gift, and you know it, then to say that the gift carries something of the giver with it, that actually means something. Well, let's apply this to what our text here in Romans 3 is teaching us. If Jesus could not and did not actually overcome death, then this gift of justification justifying grace, eternal life is how it's also referred to in other places in Scripture. But any of them, and all of us, if we're going to be justified, we've got to come to God through grace, and this is a gift. But if Jesus could not and, actually over, and did not actually overcome death, then the gift is an empty gesture. How so? Well, think about it. It's nothing to count on. Here's the gift of eternal life from someone who's dead. The tomb has to be empty or this passage means nothing. The tomb has to be empty or Christianity falls apart. But that's not my opinion. We declared that this morning when we read 1 Corinthians 15 in unison, the first line, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins, full stop. 
That's a, that's a depressing thought. The one crucified to death has to now live if his glory accessible to us, that's part of the coming of Christ, it's to make that white hot ah, awesomeness of the glory of God. Now it's approachable, now it's accessible. Jesus is the difference maker there. He shares his glory. And his glory is accessible to us through this gift, as verse 24 refers to the gift. And, and for that to be of any real value, he has to rise from the grave. Or otherwise, that cross, that's just, a, that's just a sanctuary decoration. If there's no resurrection, the cross is just a piece of jewelry. Our giver was not defeated by death. He's not a memory. What does that mean? That means when it comes to what he gives, there's something of himself in the gift, but there's also this obvious effort and expense and thought and care for us by God in giving this gift that he gives to sinful people such as you and me. All that sin is and includes, his gift of justifying grace is full of life because he's alive. This gift carries something of our giver with it. Our giver who was, again, what did Romans 1, 4 say? Declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the fact that he is Lord is also important to where we are here in chapter 3 of Romans because lordship means rulership. And that he is Jesus Christ our Lord it means he's the Lord of all. And when you're the Lord, when you're the ruler, this means you have some obligation to judge. When you're a ruler, you have some obligation to hold people to a ruling standard. And the ruling standard of God is the holiness that Jesus embodied and lived. And there's a problem for us right there. And it's a problem for God, too. This text gives us, as it were, the problem for God. How do you establish a holy rule when everybody you rule over is unholy? When all have sinned and fall short of your glory, and you being God, you being Lord of all, you can't just overlook this and still be holy. Because to be holy is to be just. I mean, what would you think of a judge over, presiding over a criminal courtroom handing out acquittals left and right to people truly guilty of crimes? The public knows they're guilty. The courtroom knows they're guilty. The judge knows they're guilty. And yet he lets person after person go and he calls it grace. That doesn't work, and we know it. Justice isn't being served, not only when penalties are overly severe, but also when penalties are negated because the judge doesn't want to judge. He just wants to dispense this cheap grace. Here's the conundrum that the gospel is the solution to. How does God avoid cheap grace and yet be gracious to the guilty? That's the problem that's underneath this text. How does God avoid violating his holiness 
yet adopt the unholy into his family? How does he pull off being just and justifier in the words there in verse 26? How can he be ruler over sinners and friend of sinners both? This text tells us, and it's beautiful, it's glorious, it's a great text for Easter. How does he do all this? Well, in a word, redemption. You see the word there in verse 24? Redemption is something for us. And in another word, propitiation, the big fancy word there in verse 25. Propitiation is something for God. Redemption, verse 24, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is something for us. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is something for God. You get the two things? Now, propitiation, because it's a word that none of us use unless we're reading Romans 3 or 1 John chapter 2, for instance. Propitiation means wrath removed. It's a big fancy word that means wrath removed. If you've been with us in this Romans study, let me refresh your memory. Chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God, propitiation is wrath removed, the wrath of God, Romans 1, 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And if you go down to chapter 2, verse 5, you get the version of wrath of God for the self-righteous, that's for the unrighteous in chapter 1. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Both and, for the unrighteous and the self-righteous, wrath. And what is wrath? Wrath is not rage. Wrath is God's considered hatred of what has vandalized his good design for for human flourishing and creation. It's his considered hatred of what hurts us, we being the people on which he's put his image and likeness. He's vested. That's his wrath. Don't get this idea of of a raging kind of God. Just like you don't get the idea of Jesus going to the cross as some kind of victim. That's That's his own wrath that he's taking on himself. In chapters 1 and 2, what Paul has done leading up to where we are in chapter 3, chapters 1 and 2, he's signaled the inevitability of God's judgment. Why? Verse 23 of chapter 3, because all have sinned. We can face his judgment either at the cross, that's the judgment day in the past, or we can face his judgment at the end, the judgment day coming. But verse 25 says... He put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. But then he says in verse 26, he shows this righteousness at the present time, meaning at the cross, God ended that forbearance. The cross was a sea change between God and people. Now you have to come through the cross. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. Even under the old covenant terms of the law, you weren't saved by keeping the law. You were saved by expressing faith. That's what chapter 4 is going to be about, the faith of Abraham that predates the law. God has always justified people by grace or, or by faith through, through grace. But it's, it's, it's not, um, when you look at this, propitiation is not so he can love us. It is because he loves us already and keeps loving us. 
But we can face, we have to face the judgment of God. That's what verse 25 and 26 is saying. His forbearance has ended at the cross. And we can face the judgment either at the cross or at the end. But when we face that judgment at the cross, guess what happens? God is propitiated. That means his wrath is removed from ever being directed at us. God will not hold us according to the guilt of our sin if we come through the cross of Christ. Redemption is something for us. Propitiation is something for God. His wrath is removed from those he's redeemed. And again, I just emphasize this because you have to underscore it. It's not so he can love us. It's because he loves us already and keeps loving us. Only Jesus was perfectly obedient to God. Only Jesus was impeccably relationally hygienic. Only Jesus lived his life completely honest to God without succumbing to sins of any kind. And yet, what does the scripture say? He was tempted in every way. He felt the pull. He felt the want to, the draw. But he withstood. God's wrath is removed from us as a result of Jesus pouring out his blood, propitiated by His blood, verse 25, why blood? It's not for the optics. It's not to make the price paid more graphically gruesome. It's not for being bloodied. Blood is our main biomarker. Now, the ancients knew this. They didn't know it the same way that moderns know it. You're going to get to a point where you can put a drop of blood on your iPhone. Maybe you already can if you have, I don't know what the 10 does. Uh, Maybe it does that. Um, and even a drop of blood, we know uh, through our, our advancements in, in medicine that, a, that a, a drop of blood contains a world about you. Just a drop. It's the ultimate biomarker. The ancients didn't know that. What the ancients thought about blood was actually that your virtue, your vitality was in your blood. They all, we've always known that life is in the blood. Drain something of its blood, no more life. But the ancient, I mean, this is kind of gross, uh, what follows here, but in Roman historical records, you had uh, people with um, chronic conditions would, would ask to drink the blood of gladiators. And the reason they did that is the thought was that if, if I can get the blood that's in the gladiator, this, this, this hulk of strength and vitality who, who's invincible, then in, in, my, in my little condition here, I'll, I'll get his strength, I'll get his vitality. That's what the ancients thought. But it's blood because blood is our main biomarker. It's, it, all the information about who you are, in, in essence, as a physical being, is in a drop of your blood. Redemption by grace is something for us. Propitiation by blood, by Jesus' blood specifically, the blood of of someone who never committed a fault, whose life down to his biomarkers was pure. That's something for God. And what verse 26 does is it ties both together. It ties the redemption and the propitiation, wrath removed. It ties these two pieces together. Look at it, verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Righteousness in context here being God's sinlessness. He's never been unrighteous. He's never been self-righteous in the sense of our self-righteousness. His righteousness, 
verse 26, at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just and justifier? This is huge. Do you realize how huge this is? In fact, do you realize that this, it's no, it, no other religion is this way? I say that with, with no arrogance, just point of fact. Just and justifier? What does it mean? It means God covers our sinfulness without violating his sinlessness. It means he takes nothing away from his justice to practice his grace. I should say there is no other theistic religion, a religion that posits that a God is there. There's no other theistic religion that has a holy God with mortal wounds of love. This is entirely unique. Just and justifier is huge. Now, in the time we have left, let's just take two angles on this because we've got couplets here. We've got redemption and propitiation. We've got just and justifier, which all of it together in a word means you're covered. You're covered. But why does God cover us? Question number one. And question number two, how does he cover us? Why does God cover us? How does he cover us? Simple Why is he both just and justifier? Why and how can he be both? How can he pull this off? First, as to why. It's because he's just. He covers us because he's just, which means he has to make what has gone wrong with his world right. He has to. It's his nature. And even if that means he has to do it himself, which he did. It's not just his mercy. We always say, well, he did it because he's merciful and gracious. And that's true. It is because of his mercy that he won't abandon what he's made in his image and likeness, we who who bear his image and likeness. But it's also because, and this passage emphasizes the justice of God, that he has to make wrong things right. Let me put this in a Netflix scene. You look like you're ready for a Netflix scene. Lynn and I were, a couple weeks ago, uh, watching um, Longmire. I don't know if you've watched Longmire, if you enjoyed that. It's a Netflix series, six seasons. We've been through all six seasons. We're delaying the last episode in the last season because we'll miss him. Walt Longmire is a Wyoming sheriff. And in the sixth and final season of the show, his department has been on the case of a bank robber named Cowboy Bill. Spoilers will follow here. I'm sorry. There's no other way to use this illustration but to ruin Longmire for you if you're just in season five or something. Cowboy Bill robbed banks in Wyoming. He robbed them in in Utah, adjacent to the border, Colorado, adjacent to all within this. um, uh, The hub was, it it began in in Walt Longmire's county. And... um, He's eluded police, this Cowboy Bill character, until he robs a bank in the adjoining county to Longmire's, and this time it's a hostage situation. Cowboy Bill um, has 20 people he's holding at gunpoint. Every available lawman is called in to assist, and Longmire goes because, well, he goes because he's figured out who Cowboy Bill is. He knows now. He goes because he's sheriff and because he's just and he's got to, to do his duty, but he also goes for Bob. 
Cowboy Bill is Bob Barnes, a resident of Longmires County, a career rodeo clown and odd jobber due largely to his alcoholism. He's basically the town drunk. Cowboy Bill, the bank robber, is Bob the broke man and Bob the broken father who's been robbing banks because of costs he's incurred. His son wants just a couple more months in drug rehab and because Bob is committed to trying to get his kid to be better than he is, Bob really loves his son to pay these bills he's robbing banks. And we groan when we learn it's Cowboy Bill. If you've been through all six seasons and you, uh, you, you get to this point and, and Bob is such a sympathetic character who, who Longmire has looked out for and, and been good to, but clearly Bob's doing wrong robbing banks. Man was shot during a bank robbery, not by Cowboy Bill, but associated with the robbery and people are getting hurt and losing money and, and even in that we get another angle on the layered nature of sin, how we can employ the wrong means, bank robbing, to do the right thing, pay my son's drug treatment bills. Again, in sin, we don't just love the wrong things, we love the right things the wrong ways. And like Bob posturing as Cowboy Bill, we, we be-clown ourselves, we caricature ourselves. Longmire drives his Bronco up to the scene. The officers all have their weapons drawn. They're surrounding the bank, and Longmire assesses the situation. They actually get the bank robber on the phone, and when he says, this is Walt, the guy hangs up, further confirming Walt knows who this is. He announces he's going in. He puts himself forward to walk into the bank, though the other officers think he's crazy, of course. They're screaming at him, don't do this. There's a, there's a guy holding hostages in there. What are you doing? But they don't know what Longmire knows. He knows who that man is. He knows that man. That man has been in his living room. He hired that man to put new cabinets in his kitchen. Longmire walks into the bank, finds Bob there holding the hostages. He sees through Bob's disguise, the fake beard and the sunglasses under the cowboy hat. And he calls him by name, Bob. He calls him to account. And Bob knows it's over for him because he knows Longmire is just. And Longmire's got him. But Longmire's got him in another way too. The standoff ends. Bob gives his gun to Sheriff Longmire, which turns out to be unloaded because our sin is both bullets and blanks aimed at God and others and ourselves. But as they make their way outside... Walt, in a quiet voice, asks Bob, how much do you owe on the rehab bills? And Bob says, just north of 10,000. And Walt says, I can cover that. Man, I got tears in my eyes watching this in my living room. (laughs) Because that's when Bob knows that Walt doesn't just know him, but loves him. And loves him at the most shameful point of, of encountering him that there's ever been between these, these two men. That's when Bob knows Walt Longmire isn't just just, but he's gracious too. He's got Bob. He'll cover Bob. It's both. That scene is about as close as we get in humanity 
to one who can be simultaneously just and the one who justifies, one who can be both Walt to Bob and Sheriff Longmire to Bob in his sin. Jesus is that one in earnest, of course. He can cover it, anything and everything that sin is. The sins you know, the sins you don't, he can cover that. Why? Because he walked out of his tomb. And he covers us without being unjust himself, without any flaws and faults and sins himself. This is where it gets better than Longmire. This is why tears come to my eyes in my living room watching this modern day Western. Because I'm thinking of somebody else. God puts forward his son. This is how he covers us. We've talked about why, now how. How does God cover us? How is he both just and justifier? By putting forward Jesus, not as a victim, no. What did chapter 1, verse 4 say about him? Declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That means he's in charge. He puts himself forward as the one in charge. He's going to go in, face down death, and come back out. I love the phrasing in verse 25 here, whom God put forward. There's only one hero in this story, and here he is. As one preacher of renown might put it, Jesus is the true and greater Longmire. And far from being irreverent, it's recognition that every hero story, all other hero stories, whether you watch them on the screen or you find them in literature, every hero story is an echo and a shadow and a yearning and a longing for this greater one, for the one who can be flawlessly just and perfectly gracious at the same time because he defeats death. Justified by his grace is a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, removing his wrath. We receive this by faith. This is to show God's righteousness and his divine forbearance. He passed over former sins, but now you've got to come through the cross. He puts forward the Lord Jesus, his son, voluntarily, Willingly takes the penalty our sin incurs, pays the debts our foolhardiness racks up, pours out his blood at our gunpoint, as it were. Permits himself to be treated as if he was guilty of any and everything sinful, everything disordered, everything negligent, everything wrong, everything not right. And for all that emerges from death, having made it stand down, having triumphed over it. Why? For being just. How? By being justifier. Simultaneously. This is our redemption. Received by faith, this gift of grace to be rightly related to God, not just in life, but also in death. Through the living Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this passage, uh, we can't do it justice. It's even greater than we know. It's your truth. It's your word. You have shown us our sin, but you have shown us your grace in the same frame. And we're grateful. We're grateful for your keeping us, 
But before you keep us, you call us. And before you call us, you committed yourself to a path we wouldn't have taken, but you took, because that's what your justice required. And I thank you, Lord, that all of your attributes complement. They don't compete or conflict. We have to understand them in tension because some of these things are just beyond us. But, Lord, we have tasted and we have seen. We know. We know through the historical reliability of the Scriptures, but we also know in the experience, in the quietude of our hearts and minds, we know that you are living and that you are coming again. Thank you for a judgment day provided for us so that your wrath is removed, that we are held not to the penalty that our sins deserve. Thank you, Lord, for your return being imminent. Thank you that you have done all things well. And redemption, Lord, thanks be to you for this indescribable gift. We praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, for what you have accomplished this day and each Sunday from this place as we open your word and ask you to speak to us and show us how we now are to respond with what we've heard, that we would not go from this place unchanged. 